Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Sloan, your bartender for today. And I'm Trish, your crime tender. And today we're going to bring you the story of John Edward Robinson. He is kind of like the first internet serial killer. So we will get into the details in just a bit. But first, an ad and a lesson in bartending. (laughs) Right. Back to another round of bartending with Sloan, your ho 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 for anything cinnamon roll, cinnamon toast crunch, <laughs> you name it, I love it. So today I am bringing you the cinnamon toast crunch shot. Mm-hmm. Yes, I know. All right. So you need two ingredients: rum chata and Fireball. That's it. I know. I've been obsessed with Fireball for a little bit now. It's it's fine. It's just For the bang for the buck, it packs so much flavor, it's really worth it. But anyways, you need two parts of rum chata to one part of fireball. What I did was one ounce of rum chata, a half ounce of fireball. And if you want to make it like a little bit more cinnamony, you can do a cinnamon sugar rim on this. I think like a caramel cinnamon sugar would really chef's kiss make this shot amazing. It's really great on its own. I'm just saying, I think the caramel simple syrup would work too, but caramel, cinnamon sugar, yum. In the reel slash TikTok that I'm going to have posted, I do not have a rim on it and it was still fucking delicious. And yeah, I hope you enjoy this. It does not taste exactly like cinnamon toast crunch in my opinion, but this is just one of those shots that you can go to like a dive bar or, you know, most most bars will know what a cinnamon toast crunch shot is. Yeah. Cinnamon toast crunch shot. I don't know if I said that right the I first time. I think so. I don't know. At my bar, we do not have rum chata, so don't expect me to make it for you at my work. <laughs> but most bars do know, and it's delicious. I hope you enjoy this fall shot. John Robinson is sometimes called the internet's first serial killer. And we'll get into that title here in just a bit. But he is a convicted serial killer, abductor, robber, con artist, and rapist. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's first learn about him and his crimes. And then we'll get into why he's known for all these things. So, John Robinson was born in... Cicero, Illinois, on December 27th, 1943. He was the third of five children. For those of you trying to be like, Sagittarius, no, he's a Capricorn. And we all know you don't trust Capricorn men. (laughs) You don't trust men. I mean, yeah, there's that. (laughs) Everybody always says Capricorn men, just bad people. Sorry if you're a Capricorn and a male, (laughs) but uh, you got some some sketchy people with you. So along with being the third of five children, you have a little more about his like family history is that his father was an alcoholic and his mother was like a a disciplinarian. So he was just kind of. There was, like, really no, I guess you could say, safe place for him. It was like, you either go to your alcoholic father that's probably a bit abusive, or you go to your mom who, because the dad's not doing shit, she's just gotta be, like, the hard ass. (laughs) At age 13... He was an Eagle Scout who actually traveled to London with a group of scouts, and they performed for Queen Elizabeth II, which I find pretty cool. I know there's people that are, like, very anti, like, 
the royal family, but I don't know why. They've just always fascinated me. I, I blame my mom. My mom literally was like, especially with Diana. My mom was very obsessed with Princess Diana as well. I also found out um, whenever I was in college that I am one of the descendants of King Henry VIII. Oh, gosh. Which is not like a high feat by any means. Because if you aren't familiar, King Henry VIII is one that married many wives and created his own religion. And killed them. (laughs) So he could marry many wives. But... Like, similarly, I'm fascinated with the royal family. Do I support it? Do no. Yeah, it, it's just, it's something fun that, like, here in the United States, we don't have. We don't have. So, it's, like, interesting to hear about and learn about. It's definitely, like, interesting from a historical point of view. Do we think that monarchy should still exist today no. that's a topic <laughs> that's a topic for another day those are murky waters but what yeah. we're saying is like historically we thoroughly enjoy pride and prejudice yes and such so from that perspective we like the 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 royalty of it all too. yeah so i know that i would have been a peasant <laughs> exactly <laughs> But Uh, I would have been a woman that it would have worked for my marriage's worth and not have done shit afterwards. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I could have been a stay-at-home dog mom. (laughs) Cat mom. Don't don't (laughs) remind me. Uh, Instead, we are feminist. And we're for women's equal rights and shit. Woo. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Anyways, getting back to John, <laughs> he, so, like, moving on with, like, him being an Eagle Scout and everything, he then enrolled at Quigley Preparatory Seminary in Chicago, which was a private boys' school for aspiring priests. But the, you know, the priest life didn't work out for him. He dropped out after one year due to disciplinary issues. Which, again, remember, his parents weren't, like, the greatest. So, I mean, it's not shocking that he kind of acted out. He also apparently had, like, terrible grades. So, yeah. Even as a priest, you gotta have some good grades. After leaving the path to priesthood, he went to trade school for radiology, but like the priesthood, he never finished school, but somehow managed to get a job as an, as an x-ray technician. He got a job at a children's hospital in Kansas City, Missouri, but he did this by forging his credentials. At age 21, which was basically the same time that he got the job, he married a woman named Nancy Nancy Joe Lynch. And together they went on to have a son and fraternal twins. In 1966, he was fired from his job due to his incompetence. I mean, I'm shocked. <laughs> We're all shocked. Oh, gosh. But... He got another job at another medical practice, and this was the medical practice of Dr. Wallace Graham, and here he embezzled $33,000 from the medical practice and had sexual affairs with both staff and patients. Hmm. He's just a great guy. I just don't know why things aren't working out for him. Not a clue. He was caught in 1969 and sentenced to three years probation, which he violated the next year by moving to Chicago without permission from his probation officer. He got a job at the R.B. Jones Company as an insurance salesman. And in 1971, he was arrested for embezzling funds and was ordered back to Kansas City where his probation was extended. 
1975, Robinson's probation was extended again after an arrest on charges of secure yeah, security fraud and like mail fraud in connection with a phony medical consulting company that he had formed. So, you know, he's all about the fraud. Just make it. Just, he he is living with the fake it till you make it. <laughs> like, hey, some of us just survive and thrive <laughs> in that zone. Yeah, but he's taking Doesn't it a little. Doesn't make it okay. <laughs> he's taking it too literal. Does it make it okay? Not yeah. always. Yeah. But some of us really thrive <laughs> in that zone. Uh, My fellow ADHDers. So, despite all of his, like, fraud and embezzling and everything that, you know, people obviously must know about, he was able to become a scoutmaster, a baseball coach, and a Sunday school teacher. He was also named to the board of directors of a local charitable organization in 1977. So, you know, just what, two years after his last uh, conviction? <laughs> you know. Normal stuff. So, while on the board of directors, he forged letters from its executive director to the mayor of Kansas City and from the mayor to civic leaders, naming him as the organization's man of the year. To which then he decided he was going to host an awards luncheon in his honor. Hmm. I I want to host a party in my honor. (laughs) Every week. Yeah. Trish, celebrate me (laughs) every week. Oh, gosh. So the media covered it, and many people realized that their recommendations had been forged. (laughs) Here's the thing, buddy. If you're going for it, you know, don't, don't, not, not so big. Not so, like, publicly. Come on. (laughs) So, for two weeks, the press exposed him as the fraud he was, but only his wife and children seemed to suffer. He finally completed his probation in 1979, and once again, he was arrested for embezzlement. And check forgery. (laughs) For which he served 60 days in jail in 1982. So finally, after this release, you know, you would think you would finally change your ways. No. Not always. He decided to start a fake, like, hydroponic business, which that's a type of, like, horticulture, which basically is a subset of hydroculture which involves growing plants usually crops without soil by using water-based mineral nutrient solutions in aqueous solvents so basically like it's a weird like way of like making crops but this was like a like I said this was a fake business and he stole $25,000 from a friend that he promised a fast investment return so his friend could pay for his dying wife's health care I'm like one what are you doing loan- loaning money to somebody when your wife is literally dying? I just, ugh. <laughs> like, I, I hate it for the friend, but also I'm like, you dumbass. <laughs> Ain't that a man? Ain't that a man? <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> In 1984, he made two more fraudulent shell companies, and Robinson hired 19-year-old Paula Godfrey to be a sales representative. Paula told her friends and family that she was being sent away for training, 
And when she didn't return or contact her parents, they went to the police to file a missing persons report. Police questioned Robinson, who denied any knowledge of her whereabouts. Several days later, her parents received a typewritten letter with Godfrey's, like, with, like, Paula's signature at the bottom of it. And it was basically thanking Robinson for his help in, like, asserting that she was okay and that she didn't want to see her family anymore. The investigation ended because she was of age and there was no evidence of any wrongdoing. And to this day, there is still no trace of Paula. In 1985, using the name John Osborne, Robinson met Lisa Stasi and her four-month-old daughter, whose name was Tiffany. And he met them at a women's shelter in Kansas City. He promised uh, Lisa a job in Chicago, an apartment, and daycare. And he had her sign several blank sheets of paper. A few days later, he contacted his brother, Don, and sister-in-law, Helen, who who had been trying to adopt a baby but they were unsuccessful. He told them he knew of a baby whose mother had committed suicide. For $5,500 in legal fees, they received Tiffany and a set of authentic appearing adoption papers with the forged signatures of two lawyers and a judge. And and Lisa was never heard from again. So her family did file a missing persons report and Robinson was investigated. He was investigated on suspicion of violating the Mann Act, which is originally like basically a way of prohibiting white slavery and transportation of women across state lines for immoral purposes. His probation was re-evaluated, but at the same time, he became a major player in, like, the underground sex industry. He was involved in an S&M-related, like, prostitution-like ring, basically. I was like, oh, okay. I literally, (laughs) like, Sloan was telling me what her case was for, like, the week. And I was like, oh, this is who mine's on. And she she goes, oh, he looks so kind. And I'm just sitting there going, no. He would have gotten (laughs) So I can't wait for you guys to, like, hear this and then, like, see the pictures and be like, what? (laughs) Yep. So, he gets involved in this underground sex industry, and the FBI actually sends in a female undercover agent to pose as a potential prostitute for Robinson, but because they became so concerned that her life was in danger, they actually pulled her out. In 1987, Catherine Clampett, who was 27 left her child with her parents in Wichita Falls, Texas, and she moved to Kansas City to find a job. Unfortunately, she found employment with Robinson, who promised extensive travel and a new wardrobe. In June of 1987, she vanished and her missing persons case is still open. From 1987 to 1993... Robinson was incarcerated on multiple fraud convictions, first in Kansas from 1987 to 91, and then in Missouri for another fraud conviction and parole-like violations. So, like, there is, like, this little gap where, like, basically things aren't looking too shady for his way, but that's because he was in jail. At Western Missouri Correctional Facility, he met 
49-year-old Beverly Bonner. She was the prison librarian. And once he was released, she left her husband, who was the prison doctor, and moved to Kansas to work for Robinson. He arranged for her alimony checks to be forwarded to a Kansas post office, like the post office box, and Beverly was never heard from again. For years, her mother would forward alimony checks, and Robinson would just continue to cash them. When questioned by her former husband, he told the husband that she had moved to Australia. And then we get into the age of the internet. And Robinson began to roam the chat rooms under the name Slave Master. And literally, I'm saying there, like, I was like, I don't know how many people remember chat rooms, but I definitely remember going into them. And I feel like Slave Master is a very generic one, but I definitely think I remember seeing that name pop up a time or two. So uh, that kind of creeps me out that maybe he was in a chat room (laughs) with me. I'm like, oh gosh. So under this name, he sought women who were looking to play the submissive partner role during sex. In the meantime... His wife supported the family by taking a job as the manager of a trailer park the family had been forced to move into after losing their suburban home. You know, because all this fraud, you know, it doesn't it doesn't make it very profitable if you definitely keep getting caught. But also, ma'am, why are you still with him? Why? I understand you got kids, but get out. Get out and leave him behind. So back to him trolling the chat rooms. An early online correspondent was Sheila Faith, who was aged 45. And she had a 15-year-old daughter named Debbie, who was wheelchair-bound due to spina bifida. Which my oldest nephew has he has a semi-severe case it's not like super severe so like I understand the whole wheelchair thing so Robinson told Sheila he was a wealthy businessman and philanthropist and he offered to pay Debbie's medical expenses and give Sheila a job In 1994, the mother and daughter moved from Fullerton, California to Kansas City and immediately disappeared. He cashed Sheila's pension checks for the next seven years. Robinson became well-known and popular in BDSM chat rooms in 1999 He offered a job and a bondage relationship to Isabella Lewicka, I think is how it's said. She's a 21-year-old Polish immigrant that was living in Indiana. Just reminded me of, like, 90 Day Fiance. (laughs) I was like, Sloan, Sloan. I do love my show. So... She moved to Kansas City, and Robinson, who was still married at the time, gave Isabella an engagement ring. They went to the county register and paid for a marriage license that was never picked up. Now, it's unknown if she believed that they were married or not, but she did tell her parents that she was married, and she never told her parents what her husband's name was. She did, however, sign a 115-item slave contract that gave Robinson almost total control over every aspect of her life, including her bank accounts. No, thank you. Right? Uh, No, thank you. I feel like Nathaniel would say the opposite, because I handle everything. (laughs) But... No, thank you. (laughs) I am a control freak. I am type A. I need to have my hand in all the pots. Right. 
even whenever I hand something over, I still have to have my <laughs> hand in the no. pot and know what's going on. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, it's just. So then, sometime over every, um, sorry, then sometime during the summer of 1999, she disappeared. Robinson told a web designer that he had employed that she had been caught smoking weed and was deported. Oh, no. <laughs> I was Not like, the devil's lettuce. I was like, are you kidding me? She literally lived in India. <laughs> like, and because she was smoking weed, she got deported. Okay. Not the devil's lettuce. <laughs> uh, it's so bad. Don't do it, children. Right. <laughs> so, around the time that Isabella went missing, a licensed practical nurse named Suzette Torton moved from Michigan to Kansas to travel the world with Robinson as his submissive sex slave. During their travels, Suzette's mother received many typed letters signed by her daughter. They were mailed so that they would arrive while the couple was abroad, but there was one problem with these letters. All the envelopes had Kansas City postmarks. Her mother said the letters were also shockingly mistake-free, which felt. <laughs> Later, Robinson told her mother that Suzette had run off with an acquaintance after stealing money from him. So now he's the victim. We're all the victims. <laughs> yeah. Over time, he became careless and his ability to avoid detection by police declined. So for some weeks after killing Suzette, he hijacked her email account and he kept in touch with some of her online friends to keep up appearances of her being alive Although the bluff wasn't, like, very hard to see through. One of the friends, a woman named Lore, started investigating Robinson, who went by J.R. Turner, in his communication with them. He also began an online relationship with a laid-off psychiatrist named Vicky, who could very well have been another victim. In 1999... He attracted the attention of police in Kansas and Missouri. His name came up in many missing persons investigations. And in the spring of 2000, Robinson wired some money to Vicki and arranged a meeting with her in a motel in Overland Park. So police staked out the room next door and, like, basically... Law enforcement just listened in as Robinson forced her to have rougher sex than Vicky had agreed to, and like basically making him guilty of sexual battery. But also, I'm like, are you kidding me? You literally let this man, like, essentially rape this woman while you listened in. And didn't do shit. Yep. Robinson left her alone in the room for days. He then sent her back to Texas, keeping the $700 worth of sex toys she had brought with her. Not long afterwards, Robinson repeated the process with, with, I think you say that her name is Jana or Jenna, maybe? Oh no, it's spelled like uh, J-E, then A-N-N-A. So, Jana, maybe? I don't know. She was, like, an unemployed accountant from Texas, and she, like, so she was an unemployed accountant from Texas, and she was also left behind, basically. Robinson, um, was arrested in June 2000 at his, like, farm near Lachine, Lacine, sorry, Lacine, 
um, Kansas after I really should have I tried to look <laughs> this up. That's right. And I couldn't figure out how it, so Jenna I guess is how I'll say it. She filed a sexual battery complaint against him and Vicky charged him with stealing her sex toys. The theft charge is actually what gave probable cause to obtain a search warrant. I was just about to say, sex toys are hella expensive. <laughs> so, him stealing sex toys is what got the search warrant. Good. <laughs> so, on the form, a task force found two decaying female bodies that were later identified as Isabella and Suzette in two 85-pound chemical drums. Across the state line in Missouri, investigators searched a storage facility where Robinson rented two garages. There they found three similar chemical drums containing corpses that were identified as Beverly Bonner, Sheila Faith, and her daughter Debbie. All five women found were killed in the same way. They had one or more blows to the head by a blunt object. In 2002, Robinson stood trial in Kansas for the murders of Suzette, Isabella, and Lisa, along with some lesser charges. After the longest criminal trial in Kansas history, he was convicted on all counts. He received the death penalty for Suzette and Isabella's murders, and life imprisonment for Lisa's murder only because he, this murder had happened while Kansas had, like, basically before Kansas had reinstated the death penalty, so they couldn't charge him with it because it, at the time it wasn't, like, a thing. So that's why he got life in prison for that one. It's more of a punishment. Kind of, yeah. He received a 5 to 20 year prison sentence for interfering with the paternal custody of Lisa Stasi's baby and 20.5 years for kidnapping Suzette and 7 months for theft. Well. Yeah. <laughs> not much of a punishment. Not really. So after his Kansas convictions, he then faced murder charges in Missouri. These convictions were based off evidence found in the state of Missouri and basically aggressively pursued capital punishment convictions, so Robinson's attorneys wanted to avoid a trial there. Chris Coster, the Missouri prosecutor, insisted on a condition of any plea bargain that Robinson like basically wanted would was that he would have to lead authorities to the bodies of Lisa, Paula, and Catherine. Robinson did not want to cooperate with authorities, so he refused Coster's, like, plea deals. So, Robinson not cooperating with the investigators in that basically put a lot of pressure on, like, Coster because, like, without, like, the deal... It basically made it, like, it just kind of forced him to try and make his case more airtight, which at the moment was not. So it was like a, is he going to get away with it? Right. So some of the issues were that there was no unequivocal, like, evidence that any of the murders had been convict, like, committed within, like, the jurisdiction. Robinson had his own pressures, though. He faced, like, the pressure of, like, to plead guilty to avoid, like, certain death in Missouri. Um, but he also basically knew that in Kansas, he was also facing, like, capital murders. So, I mean, really, he had, it was, like, 50-50. So, becoming clear that the women's remains would never be found without the help of Robinson, a compromise was reached. In a carefully scripted plea, 
in October 2003, Robinson acknowledged that Coster had enough evidence to convict him of capital murder for the deaths of Paula, Catherine, Beverly, and Sheila, and Debbie, like Faith. Um, and though his statement was technically a guilty plea and was accepted as such by the Missouri court, observers remarked that it was nobly devoid of any remorse and specifically acceptance of responsibility. Which really is not, like, shocking for, like, serial killers. They usually, like, that's kind of how they keep going. They don't feel remorse for their victims. So Robinson received a life sentence without the possibility of parole for each of the five murders. In November 2015, the Kansas Supreme Court vacated the murder conviction for Suzette and Lisa due to technicalities but upheld Isabella's conviction and its accompanying death sentence. The ruling marked the, the first time Kansas's highest court has upheld a death sentence since the reinstatement of capital punishment in 1994. Robinson currently remains on death row at the El Dorado Correctional Facility in Kansas. In 2005, Nancy Robinson filed for divorce after 41 years of marriage, citing <laughs> incompatibility and irreconcilable. <laughs> I can never say this word. The irreconcilable. Irreconcilable. Yes. <laughs> Differences. You don't say, ma'am. You don't say. You you weren't compatible with a with a serial killer and you couldn't find a way to like work things out. Gee. No. <laughs> I was like, you could have just said on grounds that he's a serial killer. <laughs> I don't know if that is a scroll down option. Yeah. I mean, ugh. That's a fill in the blank. <laughs> So, in 2006, Lisa's daughter that, like, since her adoption had been known as Heather Robinson filed a civil suit against Truman Medical Center in Kansas City and social worker Karen Gaddis. The suit accused Karen of putting Robinson in contact with Lisa and her daughter in 1984 after he told Gaddis that he ran a, chari a charitable organization assisting unwed mothers of white babies. Not black babies, white babies. In 2007, Heather and the hospital reached a settlement of an undisclosed sum, which Robinson said she would split with her biological grandmother, Patricia, bleh, Patricia Sylvester. She won a second case preventing Robinson from profiting from any future, like, potential book sales or, like, films or anything like that. So, basically, he, he can never make any money off of, like, what he did. In 2006, there was thought to be another potential victim of Robinson's, the body of a young woman named um, Lois... Tomich was found in Iowa where Robinson reportedly had a business partner but it was later like it was later believed by police that she was killed by her ex-husband but she was killed in a very similar way to his MO so could be the ex-husband it could be that she was just another random victim So, Kansas and Missouri police note that long stretches of Robinson's time remain unaccounted for and they fear that there are additional undiscovered victims. He's maintained the secrets about what he's done with the women. He won't ever tell. It's the, la it's the last control he's got, said one investigator. There are probably other barrels waiting to be opened, other bodies waiting to be found. 
He has been used in a few like episodes of like popular crime like TV shows and like one in particular is Criminal Minds. He's actually kind of in two episodes, I guess you could say. In season 5, the episode called The Internet is Forever, he's the inspiration behind that. And in season 7, Profiling 101, he's mentioned along with a few other serial killers. There are also a few books about him. One of the books is about him and his victims. It's called Internet Slave Master and was released covering his life up to the trial. A second book about Robinson is called Anyone You Want... Sorry. Anyone You Want Me To Be, A True Story of Sex and Death on the Internet. And that was written by John Douglas and Stephen Singular. And the last book is called Depraved by John Glatt. And that was released in 2001. And mostly it details the lives of those affected by Robinson's crimes. And... That is basically the case of the internet's uh, first serial killer. I mean, I know that they always said, you know, chat rooms, you gotta be careful because you never know who you're talking to, which, I mean, didn't stop any of us from going on them. (laughs) But it's just crazy to think that, you know, I couldn't tell you for the life of me, like, half the people that I would, like, be talking to. So, like, it's just crazy to think, like, maybe at one point he was either in a chat room with us or, like, maybe talked to him but then realized, oh, you're a little too young. (laughs) People are going to notice if you go missing. I, as somebody with, like, divorced parents, I don't know if this was... Uh, me thing but when my parents divorced and I was like at my dad's place I definitely turned to a lot of like online chatting for sure um and my mom was definitely like a helicopter parent and my dad was not and so like at my dad's house I remember there was this one guy that I got like really deep into online chatting with and like he wanted my phone number and all this other stuff. And it was just like, I was 10. I was 10 talking to a 22-year-old. Supposedly. Oh, gosh. Grooming. Supposedly <laughs> 22. Now, he could have been 12 and he could have been 52. But, like, holy shit. Looking back on the things that we used to do. <laughs> how did we not end up in one of these? <sighs> I'm surprised I'm still here today. Oh, but right. I'm thankful I'm still here today. Yes all together and yeah uh, the internet was the wild wild west back in the 90s <laughs> and early 2000s yeah before it was heavily policed yeah yes like, absolutely jeez i yeah between chat rooms and then just like games you would play on the internet and then like going to chat rooms there mm-hmm. like god <laughs> but That is my case. Like I said, it's one that, like, I don't really think I've ever heard. And I just saw, like, Internet's first serial killer. And I was like, oh. And I saw the the kindly little old man staring at me. And I was like, oh, what could he have done? A A lot. lot. He did a lot. Okay. (laughs) I'm like, not a kindly little old man. Not at all. (laughs) But that being said, we will kick you off to the last call. Welcome back to another Last Call. Today I figured we could talk about the internet. (laughs) So first let's start off with while we have spent most of our lives with the internet in our life, the internet is only like 1100 days old. (sighs) Like it... It seems like it's been here forever, especially depending on when you've been when you were born. But the article that I'm reading is from July 15th, 2016, and it specifically says as of that date, the internet is 9,110 days old. 
Yep. And we've experienced about two, 2,500 days since then. So, you do the math. Yeah. yeah. If the internet were weighed, it would weigh about two ounces. I'm pretty familiar with that because I smoke some sweet. <laughs> but that's about 50 grams. God. Um, Trish, that's about two months supply for me and Nathaniel. <laughs> Just a, there you go. Yeah. How does one measure the weight of the internet? Physicist Russell Seats measured the weight of multiple billions of electrons, which make up the data that we send back and forth every day. And created the data from that. So, two ounces. Three, YouTube uploads 72 hours of video every single minute. Oh my gosh. And yes, it's mostly of people's pets. Hello. <laughs> Send me your pet videos. Number four, the current estimate of internet users is roughly 3.26 billion people worldwide. And that sounds like a lot of people, but that's really only like half of the Earth's population. That's crazy. Yeah. Five. How often do you use Google to search the internet? <laughs> Quite a bit. Google A is my best friend. <laughs> we are personal like that. I call her Google A. <laughs> uh, BFFs. Oh, yeah. But Google averages nearly 3 billion searches per day. To me, that seems a little low because I will literally be like, what color is the sky? Why is the sky that color? <laughs> why is this? Why is purple purple? Why is two plus two equal four? Like, I Google every fucking thing. I have a girl at work the other night and she was having some intrusive thoughts. And instead of, an, instead of like caving into those thoughts, we started playing really random fucking games. And she was like, why is an olive a fruit or a vegetable and which is it and like literally for the next eight hours of our shift we talked about olives and i spent a lot of time on google figuring <laughs> out what the fuck exactly are olives and what exactly is a pickling vinegar versus a brining vinegar it was a whole thing it was a whole thing but google is my bff is the point of that i ask her a million questions a month, minimum. The number of people in China who use the internet is double the population of the whole United States. So like 640 million people. That's a lot of people. Yep. The phrase internet surfing was coined by a librarian named Jean Armoire Polly in 1992. One of the inventors of the web as we know it, Tim Berners-Lee, was knighted by Queen Elizabeth, R.I.P. Korean rap sensation Sai Song Gangnam Style holds the record for YouTube's most viewed video ever. Oh, God. I'm not shocked. <laughs> it has been viewed more than 2 billion times since July 15, 2012. And that was, once again, this is from 2016. So yeah. I can only assume that number has gone up. Number 10, 87% of people have not heard the term Internet of Things. I'm one of the 87%. Right. Number 11, it is estimated that by 2020, a quarter of a billion vehicles will have Internet connection. I feel like that's come true. Yeah. I feel like that's fair. 12, China has a treatment camp for people who suffer from Internet addiction. Can I get the address for that? <laughs> I can't decide who needs to go more, me or my husband. I don't know. Yeah. 13. The first webcam video is from the University of Cambridge. The subject of the first live video feed, you'll love this one, a coffee pot. Okay. The majority of internet use is not done by humans, but by malware and internet bots. Duh. I mean, which account, shocking. Which account for two-thirds of internet activity. 15. Symbolics.com was the first registered domain. Number 16. The first spam email that ever went out was from a computer salesman named Gary Thurk in 1978. Fuck you, Gary. <laughs> I said that with my whole chest. 
Number 17, Asia accounts for 1.7 billion of the internet's 3.26 billion users. Not shocked there either. 18, file sharing and media streaming are responsible for more than half of the traffic on the web. Not shocked there either. Nope. 19, ATMs, which date all the way back to 1974, are considered the first major Internet of Things objects. And lastly, if the Internet were measured in horsepower, it takes 50 million horsepower to run the Internet today. Those are our fun facts. We hope you enjoyed hanging out with us today. You can find us on our social medias. We have Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. They are all tequila she wrote across the board. You can also email us with any case suggestions, last call recommendations, liquor, beer, wine. We love it all. And that is tequila she wrote at gmail.com. We also have our Patreon for as little as $2 a month. You get ad-free episodes and you get some bonus content. And then if you sign up for some of our other tiers on there, you get even more bonus content and you get some merch. We just saw our, like first little bit of merch today through my friend sending me like pictures of it and it looks super cute and now I want some um (laughs) but if you want to find us there go to patreon.com backslash tequila she wrote or you can go to our socials find our link tree click on that it'll have a direct link to our patreon and if you're still struggling after that Email us, send us a message. We will try to direct you there the best we can. But thanks for riding on the Hot Mess Express today. Toot toot. Beep beep.